Well, this time I'd like to invite the kids to head back for Children's Church. All those who are going to Children's Church, feel free to head back ages 3 to kindergarten, 3 to 5, join back with Miss Jen, I see, waving at the back. Feel free to join her back there. And the rest of us can turn to Genesis chapter 6. As the kids head back, we'll turn to Genesis chapter 6. If you're visiting this morning, just a word to you, I apologize in advance. This is one of the weirdest passages in all of Scripture, and you just happen to be here for this Sunday. One of the most uh, debated passages in all of the Old Testament, and we're going to have fun with it. We have a a conviction as we go through Scripture, we don't want to skip over the hard stuff or the confusing stuff. We want to lean right into it. So that's what we're going to do this morning in Genesis 6, 1 through 8. I'm going to read it all, Genesis 6, 1 through 8, and then we'll break it down. I'm reading from the NIV translation. If you like, feel free to stand with me as we read God's Word. It says... When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You may be seated. Our Father and God, we always ask for help, but on some Sundays we ask for more help. And this is one of those Sundays, so I pray that you'd be here among us. Um, help us, Lord, to scratch the intellectual itches or academic itches that we may have, uh, just plainly how to understand this. But more than that, would you provoke our hearts and move us as your heart is moved and provoked. Um, shape us by your word. And give us confidence in your grace. And pray in the name of your Son. Amen. What's your favorite hymn? Do you have one? You may or may not. I I, I want to give you a new one this morning. It's one I saw going around on social media. Let me see what you think. Maybe this could go in our rotation. It's called, Send Us Thine Asteroid, O Lord. It reads like this. I won't sing it because I don't know what the tune is. But it reads, Send Us Thine Asteroid, O Lord. Thy vengeance be on us outpoured. Engulf the earth in flame and fire. Obliteration we require. Just like you did with dinosaurs, destroy mankind with meteors. Humanity has run its course. Annihilation we endorse. We praise thee, O almighty God, now bury us into the sod. 
Please hurl a rock of massive size to bring to us a swift demise. Amen. What do you think? Should Russ throw that into the rotation? I'll be, I don't know if that's actually a real hymn. It may be, it may not. I, I don't know. But it was going around on social media, and I thought, how fitting for the passage we're going into and the story we're going into over the next few weeks of Noah and the flood and God wiping out almost all of humanity. It's a funny hymn, but these are sobering passages. I'm talking about the corruption on the earth and God's response to it. This passage, 6, 1 through 8, kind of falls in between the middle of the genealogies of Genesis 4 and 5, of people increasing on the earth, and then the flood narrative of Noah. This is a transition point, which shows us the increasing corruption on the earth. And the question is, how will God respond to it? That's our main question for us this morning. How will God respond to growing corruption on the earth? It's actually an important question. Not just a question for back then, but I think a question for us now. Because if you're like me, what you see as you look around, if you're cynical and jaded in the way I kind of tend to be, is you see growing corruption on the earth. One of the disappointing things about growing older is you realize how wicked people can be. And you realize how wicked your own heart can be. You realize the imperfection, the evil that surrounds us. I mean, I brought this up before, but I was reminded of it again watching the movie Spotlight. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. Spotlight is the story of the Boston Globe as they uncovered the um, child sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Church in Boston and brought it to light. There was a systemic and intentional cover-up of pedophilia in the Roman Catholic Church. And as it turns out, that kind of sexual abuse and cover-up is not isolated necessarily to the Catholic Church. That kind of thing has gone on in other denominations as well. So we see that there's corruption even within the quote-unquote church. There's corruption in the entertainment industry. There's corruption in corporations and sports teams and religious institutions. Just about everywhere you look, if you look at the system or a group of people, what you're going to find is evil on display all around us. So the question becomes, how will God respond to this? Is God okay with it? Is he going to let it slide forever? Or will there be a response? And maybe sometimes you're wondering, how soon is that response going to be? Why does he put up with it? How will God respond to growing corruption on the earth? That's the, the, the question that Genesis 6 raises and answers. So let's explore that, starting in verses 1 through 4. In verses 1 through 4, what we see is that corruption is universal. By the time you get to Genesis 6, just a few chapters after Adam and Eve in the garden, the fall in Genesis 3, the genealogies of Genesis 4 and 5, we now get to Genesis 6, and what we find is that corruption is universal. It is spread everywhere. Look at verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. 
Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. All right, so like I said, one of the most debated, confusing passages in all the Old Testament. We have this scene where the sons of God marry, have children with the daughters of men. There are three questions that really drive our understanding. So three questions we're going to ask about these four verses to help us kind of unpack this text. As we do that, you might get lost in the weeds. That's okay. Uh, That's fine. Go back to the main point here. The main point here is that corruption is universal. That's what these four verses are really trying to tell us. But we'll ask a few questions to try and unpack it and figure out what's going on. The first, most important question for this is, who are the sons of God? As Wilkins says, the sons of God were on the earth. Who were they? There are a few options I'll give you. The first option for the sons of God and who they were is they were spiritual beings, angels or fallen angels, demons, who intermarried with humans on the earth. This is actually the oldest position in the church. The early church almost universally held this. Ancient Judaism held this position that the sons of God were angels. Why do people think this? Well, there's a couple passages in Job, and we went over them in Sunday school, but in Job, where sons of God clearly uh, refers to angelic beings, or heavenly supernatural beings. So if you look at a couple places in Job, that's where that phrase is used, sons of God, and it refers to angelic beings. There's also a few passages in the New Testament, First and Second Peter and Jude, which talk about the fall of angels and kind of associate that with what happens in the flood. So if you make that association, you might think, okay, that's what happened. The angels fell before the flood, and they fell by intermarrying with women. So that's one position the church has held, that these sons of God were angelic beings who corrupted humanity through their union with women. The problem with that position is that Jesus seems to pretty clearly state that angels don't reproduce. He says that in New Testament in Luke 20, 34 through 36. So it's hard to believe that these are angelic beings who are able to reproduce. So some have come up with another option, a second view. Maybe these sons of God were from the line of Seth. And if you can put verses 1 to 3 back on the, on the screen, or verses 1 to 2 in particular... Sons of God, maybe that is a reference to the line of Seth. Remember what happened in Genesis 4 and 5. Again, sorry for you visitors who were here before, but you can look in your Bibles. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. Genesis 4 and 5 talk about two lines of genealogies. There's the line of Seth, there's the line of Cain, both of whom are sons of Adam and Eve. Line of Cain, all bad. Goes bad. Line of Seth, pretty good. Worshippers. So, you get to this text and say, hey, we've got two lines of humanity. The sons of God, the line of Seth, the daughters of women, maybe the other line. And what happens is they intermarry, and there's corruption through intermarriage. That would fit the context of what's going on here really well to explain how Seth's line got corrupted, leading to the flood. The godly line of Seth has become become corrupted. That's the position of a lot of church history, including Luther and Calvin. That's what they held. It makes sense in context. The problem is, if you look at those verses... Seth and Cain just aren't mentioned at all. So you'd be importing an understanding into the text 
So some aren't convinced by that position. So here's a third position. Who are the sons of God? Just normal dudes. This may be the simplest position. Who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? Well, they're just men and women. And actually, this isn't describing necessarily sinful activity in verses 1 and 2. There's nothing in verses 1 and 2 that condemns it. It's just men and women getting married and having kids. And maybe the point of this is that what was going on in Genesis 6 is just normal life. Men and women getting married, having kids, then all of a sudden, judgment comes. They were carrying on as normal, as men and women do, married and given in marriage, and then suddenly judgment comes. That would fit very well with what Jesus says in Luke 17. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. People were living their lives normally, and then suddenly judgment came. So maybe these sons of God are just normal guys. The challenge with that is, once you get to verse 3, it seems that in response to what's going on in verses 1 and 2, the Lord says, I'm shortening their life and judgment is coming. So it seems like contextually something sinful is going on here. Something has corrupted the line. So a lot of people don't take that position. There's the fourth position. Here's your fourth option, if you're still with me. The fourth position is that the sons of God aren't just normal men, nor are they angels or descendants of Seth. Rather, they are ancient, powerful rulers and kings. The sons of God are kingly, royal leaders who use their authority to take women for themselves and corrupt everything. This is probably the most popular position of recent Christian scholarship. They note that those who are kings in the Bible have often said to have a father-son relationship with God. It was common in the ancient world to see rulers and kings as almost deified. And it is not uncommon for kings and rulers to take women for themselves. This might be the beginning of the practice of building harems. Some also combine that position with verse 1 and say, these are rulers and kings who have been possessed by and influenced by demons, and that is how they're able to procreate. They're humans corrupted by the angelic, powerful rulers and kings, and they've corrupted the world through that. The problem again with this position is it says nothing about rulers and kings, just says sons of God and daughters of men. So you're importing an understanding into the text. So where does that leave us? Are these sons of God angels? Descendants from Seth, the godly line? Are they just normal guys? Or are they rulers and kings? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Like, choose one of the four. Choose a couple of the four. I'm not sure. That's why this passage is debated. Good theories, all of them have their problems. But in the end, the point kind of seems to be somehow the world faces increasing corruption. We see that in verse 3. It leads to the second question. What does God mean by 120 years? He will not let his spirit abide in humanity forever. Depending on your translation, it says he will not remain or contend with humanity forever. In other words, God won't put up with humanity forever. He has put an expiration date 
on these people. Like an expiration date on a gallon of milk, the expiration date here is 120 years. But that brings up another question. What is 120 years referring to? Individual human life? Previously, people lived hundreds and hundreds of years, and God is saying, now we're going to cap that roughly at 120 years old. That is the upper limit for human life. Or is God saying that in 120 years, judgment is coming? And again, I'll say, I don't know. But either way, the point is the same, that God will not contend with or put up with you forever. There is, because of corruption and sinfulness, a shelf life. And then we read about the Nephilim. So here's the third question. Who are the Nephilim? Guess what my answer is going to be? I don't know. But I'll give you some options. What can we say about the Nephilim? The problem is not much, because you know what that Nephilim word is? It's a Hebrew word that just goes untranslated because we don't know what it means. So your translation put a capital N on there and make it sound official, but it's just the Hebrew word Nephilim that nobody knows exactly what it means. So it's untranslated and just, we just give you the straight Hebrew and that's supposed to mean something. Some say that Hebrew word Nephilim is associated with the fall or fallen, so it could be referring to fallen ones, possibility. What do we know about Nephilim? There's one other place where they appear in Scripture. Does anybody know where that is? Numbers 13. Numbers 13. Spies of Israel sent out to scout out the promised land. And what do they say when they come back? I know God sent us there, but mm-mm. People there are too scary, too big. Numbers 13.33, we saw the Nephilim there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So Numbers 13 takes that same word and says, that describes the fierce, scary giants in the promised land that we cannot go and take. So it could be that these Nephilim are large, scary people. They're not descendants of these Nephilim because these Nephilim are about to be wiped out. So they're not the same as those in Numbers 13, but it does fit with what we read about here, or what we read about the Nephilim here in Genesis 6. They're men of renown, heroes of old. Those are ways of saying they're warriors. Violent mighty people that may or may not be the offspring of the sons of God and daughters of men. There's actually nothing in the text that directly links them. They may be, they may not. So if you think the sons of God are angels, maybe you'd say the Nephilim are supernatural offspring and corrupted offspring. If you think the sons of God were normal men, then you would say these are more or less normal men. They're just mighty, large people. If you think the sons of God were rulers or kings, then you might say the Nephilim were their mighty men, their warriors who warred on their behalf. A lot of unknowns. All right, have I happily confused all of you? Here's the overall point. God saw what was going on, and he was going to put an end to it. Why? Because humanity had been corrupted. It seems like, not surprisingly, 
a focal point of the corruption was in their sexuality. I think Genesis explains a lot about the world today. People become universally corrupt, particularly in their sexual actions and their violence. They've taken deviancy and called it normal. And there's no sin they won't normalize. Wickedness and evil has done its work universally. This ought to be a humbling passage for us. What happens with humanity without check? Here's what happens. Universal corruption. This is who we are left to our sin. As opposed to the idea of modern secular humanism, you might not know what that means, modern secular humanism the idea that, according to secular humanists, we should throw away all religious dogma and doctrine, throw away belief in the supernatural, throw away all superstitions, all those things should be cast aside. We need to be secular humanists, not religious spiritualists. Secular humanists, why? Because we don't need any of that religious spiritual thinking. We need human reason, human ethics, naturalistic thinking. We have everything within us to solve the world's problems we just unleash human potential and who we are in our human minds and reasoning. We have all we need inside of us. And scripture constantly destroys that idea. I think reality destroys that idea. We are not all good. It is not wonderful just to be who you are. Yes, you are made in the image of God and glorious and wonderful. And there's all sorts of scripture that will highlight that fact. In fact, even here, you see God's love for his people. But at the same time, don't miss what Genesis clearly says, what the flood narrative clearly says. It humbles us and says, we are wicked and evil. There is corruption in humanity. And then left to our own devices, we will ruin everything. We need health. So why Romans 3, 10 through 17, Paul says, no one is righteous. In our words, in our actions, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their feet are swift to shed blood. It's who we are. The question is, how will God respond? So we get to that in verses 5 through 7. God contemplates the state of humanity in his creation, and he makes a decision. Judgment is coming. Genesis 6, 5 through 7. So warning for us, judgment is coming. Verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. What did God see the last time he looked upon his creation? At the end of creating, 
God looked out and he saw that it was very good. Now, God looks out and sees again, and what does he see? Only evil. Not just in action, but every thought, every motivation, everything in the heart, everything inside a person was evil all the time, to the point where God regretted he had made humanity. And we might say, how could God regret something? This is another curious aspect of this passage. How could God regret something? Didn't God know this was going to happen before time? Like, this is what we believe about God. He's omniscient, knows all things. He's omnipotent. He has all power to do all things. God knows the beginning and the end. Scripture is very clear on this. God knew what would happen. How then could he regret it? This word for regret, it's a... I don't know how to say this, maybe a more emotional word than a theological word. It teaches us how God reacts in time, in relationship with his people, and how he responds to his people. There's words like that all throughout scripture. God is, on the one hand, outside of time and space, yet very much really, truly interacting with us in reality. And he responds to our actions with joy and delight, or, here, regret. It's a way of expressing just how grieved God was by sin. He anguished. He was displeased, troubled. What's he going to do? God has several options. He could let humanity keep going, violate his own justice and holiness, and just let sin continue. Or, he could wipe all of creation out and just start again without violating his promise that he will bring one who would crush a serpent out of this line. So, what does God do? He cleanses the world. That's his decision. That is behind the flood. God's decision to cleanse the humanity, or cleanse sin from this world and its people, but to leave a remnant. Uh, to quote Second Kings 21.13, God will wipe out the earth like one wipes a dish. Animals as well, showing us how thoroughly the world will become corrupted. Buckle up, this is what we're going to be talking about for the next three weeks. Or we'll break in Easter. This is what the flood narrative is about. So in your happy children's books, the animal's smiling. Here's the background. Here's what's going on. Humanity is so corrupt, God's choice was to wipe it out. Why? Notice the passion or the emotion of God in here. Not out of blind rage, but a broken heart, if I can speak sentimentally. Not out of hatred for people, but love for people and hatred of sin that had destroyed his world. If we're going to understand the judgment of God, this is the only way we'll understand it. It is if we have some understanding of both God's love for his creation, his love for people, his desire for people to be prospered and prosper on his creation, and both God's hatred for sin that destroys his creation. He has both of those, a love for people and a hatred for sin, in measures that we can't understand, but until we kind of comprehend some of that, we'll never understand the judgment passages. That this is the perspective of God. He loves his world, loves his people, but hates the sin that has destroyed it, so he's going to do something about it. 
The shocking part in all this is not that God would judge the world. The shocking part about this whole story is that our sin, human sin, had become so great that he had no other choice. Imagine the most patient, kind person you know. What would it take to get them to respond in rage? I'm kind of picturing the, the British soldiers with the fuzzy hats who stand outside Buckingham Palace, right? And, and they're charged to stand still. And then, I don't know if anybody's actually done this or if this is a thing, go and poke them and see if they'll move. I don't know if that works or maybe don't do that. But the idea is that they're not to be provoked, they're to stand still and say, what would it take to provoke them? You can ask the same question about what is the most kind, patient, sensitive person you know. What would it take to provoke them? If you provoke them, then you knew you were in the wrong. So if I walk out into the lobby, and if I see Ellen Friesen swing her purse at somebody, <laughs> right, I know that person did something wrong. It was not on Ellen. Because I know who she is, right? And for her to do that, that person must have really messed up. That's how we should look at judgment passages. For God to do this... For God to do this, which sounds so extreme, so harsh to us, for him to get there, who is patient, more patient than you are patient, more loving than you are loving, more compassionate than you are compassionate, don't think you're more compassionate than God. How arrogant a belief we have to think we'd be more kind, more patient, and more long-suffering than God would be. We look at these judgment passages and say, how could he? How could he? You couldn't. If you had seen what he saw, you would have snapped in an instant. How many of us have blind rage over other people's sin? Conveniently overlooking our own, but there are some things that get me really angry. It takes us nothing to rage over sin, provided it's the right ones that trigger us, not the ones that we don't care as much about. Well, God has a full understanding of all of it. God also has a full understanding of holiness and what it ought to be. And he, in his long-suffering patience, looks out and says, okay, I cannot put up with this anymore I'll do something about it. And that is what motivates him and his judgment. His holiness, his compassion, his love for his people, his long-suffering and patience. And what should shock us is that sinfulness was so sin, humanity had gotten so wicked that God takes this action. And as a warning for us, as we read these judgment passages, that God will eventually respond in judgment. And that we should not take his patience and long-suffering for inactivity or indifference. That there will come a time, as Jesus said, where people are living their lives, drinking and eating, marrying and being given in marriage, living normal lives, and judgment will come. There is a time when God will judge the world as he did in the flood. But, there's always room for hope and grace. And you're going to notice a, passage, or a pattern, and maybe it'll sound repetitive by the time we get done with this flood narrative, but there's a pattern all throughout Genesis. And in these beginning passages, it got really, really bad, but there's a thread of hope. Things are really sinful, there's grace. And we see that in verse 8. Grace is available. In Noah, for Noah, grace is available. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
whole world would be judged. But Noah found favor. Now, that favor, that word there is the word grace. Hebrew word for grace. What is grace by definition? Is it something merited or earned? Grace is a gift of God that must be received. It's a gift given, or else it's not grace. It's not favor. So this is the big fundamental question for Noah. On what basis did he find favor with the Lord? Why did the Lord give Noah favor? Was it something Noah did? Or was it God's grace, unmerited favor? Again, this is where so many children's books get it wrong. Read your children's books. The world was evil, but Noah was good. Now, in a couple verses, we'll get there next week, and we'll say Noah's righteous. Compared to the people of the time, he was a righteous person. But that comes after verse 8. What comes first? Verse 8. Noah found grace. But our bad theology teaches us, oh, Noah was saved because he was such a good person, such a righteous person compared to all the rest of filthy humanity. Then we read the rest of the story, oh, Noah kind of was a bad person too. We'll get there. Noah was simple just like every other person, but Noah found grace. God gave grace to Noah. Not deserved, but a gift. What saved Noah was the undeserved grace in favor of God. And this is what saves anyone from inevitable judgment. So all of us stand under judgment were not for grace. As Titus 3, 4 or 5 says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Why are we saved? Not because of anything we've done, not because we're righteous, but because of God's mercy. So as Protestants and children of the Reformation, we hold to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And that wasn't a doctrine that was invented in the Reformation. It wasn't a new theology invented by Paul. It was all the way back in Genesis 6, at the beginning, Noah was saved by grace. He found favor in the eyes of God by God's grace. Right from the beginning, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone is how God has always saved people. It's never been any different. If anyone is going to be accepted by God, it was always going to be by grace. You say, well, I know that. Well, I'd say, let me repeat it to you. Because your heart, if it's anything like mine, will keep trying to find credit for your salvation. When we think about evangelism and the impossibility of people coming to God and how is it that anybody is saved, the hardest people to convert are not sinners who know they're sinners. It's condemned people who think they're righteous by their own good works. We think that somehow I'm good enough and I've made myself good enough and I'm glad I'm better than the other person. As I look back about my own life, this was my great sin. There are others, right? Let's not kid ourselves. But the great evil in my heart was thinking, I'm good enough. 
I'm a righteous person. I'm glad I'm not doing what they're doing over there. And the doctrine of salvation by grace alone teaches us none of us are good enough. And yet, grace is available and saves us, not because of us, but because of God. R.C. Sproul said it well. He said, perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for our salvation. It is difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. My prayer is that this would be the message of our church, a message of the church. We are all saved by grace. And that grace is only found in Jesus Christ. We'll see that Noah will be saved through a wooden ark. We're saved by Jesus Christ on a wooden cross. And on that cross, these two great themes of God's judgment and God's grace meet. He will judge sins, and he will provide a way of escape by grace. We asked in the beginning, how will God respond to growing corruption on the earth? Here we have our answer. He won't put up with evil forever, but grace is available. And because it's grace, it's available to anyone. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in a sinful world you decided to give favor and that we can find favor, find grace in the eyes of God. Lord, may that be our message that we proclaim, that there is grace for sinful people. And as we'll see, that you make sinful people righteous. Help us to be sobered by the reality of judgment and the reality of wickedness and evil and encouraged by, comforted by the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.